So we are in Psalm 88 in our uh, series, a sampling of Psalms. This is a, a lament as well. We've, we've done a few of these, and uh, this is the last of our laments. <clears throat> this uh, lament in Psalm 88 is unusual in that there is no resolution. We'll see as we finish the text. I'll read it in a minute, but... <clears throat> Dan, the consummate educator, saw that, saw the unresolved nature of the text and thought, I'll just leave town. Just to drive the point home uh, of this uh, text. I mean, he will go to great lengths. Uh, <clears throat> so let's, uh, let's look at this. If, you've, if you're looking at the um, Bible, there is a, a title. And it probably looks like something like this. It says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath, Leneth, a maskal of Haman the Ezraite. Maybe you all see that. <clears throat> this uh, poem is apparently written by Haman the Ezraite. According to historians, he was a... Uh, spiritual counselor and a musician to King David. Uh, the uh, uh, text in 1 Kings 4 describing Solomon and Solomon's wisdom, <clears throat> 1 Kings 4.31, Solomon is described as even wiser than Haman the Ezraite. Uh, the, the text, I think, also mentions Ethan the Ezraite, who happens to write the next uh, psalm in this book, Psalm 89. It is uh, written to the, uh, for the sons of Korah to use. You may recall we've talked about them in previous uh, texts. They worship leaders in the kingdom. So Haman, no doubt, was trained in music and poetry. He was a wise and educated man. And uh, my eyes fall on a couple of words that I, frankly, had never seen before, like mahalath, which, uh, which is an instrument. It's a, um, a smaller U-shaped harp-type instrument called a lyre. And uh, the word leneth is not found in any other introduction to the Psalms. And leneth... This, uh, this word has the same meaning as hemlock or wormwood. And so, uh, so you would be thinking of a uh, term like bitterness, right? And so as we consider the title of this, this uh, a mascal is a uh, didactic or instructive poem, uh, a poem that instructs us how to live. And so we have here an instructive psalm concerning afflicting sickness or an instructive poem about the bitterness of suffering. Okay, let's, uh, let's read it. <clears throat> Starting with verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, 
and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So, uh, wow, not really a uh, pick-me-up to uh, start our morning. The last time I was up here, I mentioned that I listen to uh, music when I'm, when I'm doing this. And uh, the, uh, the music, I was listening to the blues, I was listening to the Smiths. If you grew up in the 80s, they have nothing but negative uh, music to play. Just to kind of get in and walk around in the pain of this uh, author. Now, we have been raised on a diet of stories with Hollywood endings. We expect those things. We, uh, we expect that at the end of 30 minutes or an hour, that the guy gets the girl, the hero saves the day, the detective solves the case, and good overcomes evil. That's how we're wired. <clears throat> but if we're honest, that's not life. Uh, we don't always get, and we're not always entitled to the so-called happy ending. For a pastor to say that you are poor because you simply don't trust God's promises enough, or you would be uh, rich and successful if you would simply block the sin of negativity or negative people in your life, would require a very selective reading of Scripture. David, Asaph, in this third book of the Psalms, have written much about their sorrows. This is the only writing that we have from Haman. 
but uh, certainly it is, uh, it is solemn. We Christians should not be surprised, but instead prepared when suffering and sorrow comes for us. So <clears throat> up until this point, we've talked about the uh, formula for a lament. Uh, we've talked about the purpose of a lament. If uh, you have found yourself in difficult times, and you're like me, no doubt you have grumbled and complained a little bit, right? Uh, the Israelites have a little bit of a history of grumbling and complaining, don't they? Even in the face of great salvation, a minute later, walking on dry land on the other side of the Red Sea, they begin to grumble and complain. And so it's important that we look at the lament and uh, and use this to shepherd our hearts and our minds as we go through difficult times, right? This is something for us to hold on to, to, uh, to glorify God in our trials and in our suffering. We have to expect it. So up until this point here, we've had this awesome uh, sort of uh, uh, equation for the lament, complaint plus prayer brings us to praise, right? Only today, our writer takes that and runs a line through it. No praise. We end, the last word in this lament is darkness, okay? Just let that kind of, uh, you know, sink into you here this morning. So, why do we have this lament? If we uh, pray and complain, do we feel better necessarily? Is that just a a tidy little three-step process for us? Rather, it is a discipline. It is to discipline your weak little heart so that when trouble comes, you don't turn back to your sinful ways. But you persevere in light of God's saving plan for his people so that you suffer well for your good and God's glory. This is not a psalm of an immature believer. This is not uh, written by someone who does not know God. This psalm comes from uh, a man whose wisdom we should follow. Uh, He was an advisor to God's kings. So this was written by a mature wise man to answer the question, what happens when you cry for help, but no help is coming? What we have today is, for the younger kids, a boss level of suffering. It is the double black diamond of lament, if you will. This is the most mournful of psalms, and you can probably feel it as we you know, read through this. The author is at the point of despair. So he starts in the first nine verses with a complaint against God's action. As you, as you look through uh, the verses, can, uh, let's... Let's look at verse 3 through 9. 
Is there an overriding theme here in the language? What, uh, what kind of words do you see in this first uh, nine verses? Death, grave, troubles, Sheol, the pit, um, yeah, it's very dark, isn't it? It's all about, every line is dripping with uh, death and darkness. You see that? Lots of death words. Sheol, pit, grave, slain, dark and deep, horror. We see here despair, hopelessness. He's at the end of his rope, overwhelmed. I have no strength, no ability to save myself, he says. Do you see some water language in there? Did you see that? Verse 7, you overwhelm me with your waves. To the Israelite, water is associated with judgment. Uh, Certainly they have uh, in their lexicon the uh, experience of the flood, right? And this judgment. And uh, not too long ago, the experience at the Red Sea, where... They have salvation and judgment side by side at the Red Sea. They are backed up with Pharaoh's army coming to them. And if Yahweh doesn't part the water, the Israelites are surely slaughtered. But he does part the water, and the Egyptians find their judgment instead. The Egyptians were overwhelmed with his waves, weren't they? So <clears throat> these are the kinds of pictures that the original audience is uh, no doubt imagining and picturing as the writer pens verse 7. There is desperation outside of the ark. Chaos, calamity, death. Or in the midst of the sea, as the waves are no longer parted and crash together over God's enemies. Is there anything else unusual in the first nine verses? Anything that uh, kind of uh, you didn't expect? Or wow, Jane. Yes. There's a, purpose, there's a purpose for that. Probably the neatest, tidiest bit of theology in the text. He says, O Lord, God of my salvation. There's a couple other things here. What I found uh, that kind of smacked me is he says, uh, you, he is putting his accusation squarely at God. For someone who knows the grace of God, perhaps there is nothing as terrible as living in his wrath. He says, you have put me in the pit, 
Your wrath lies upon me. You have caused my companions to leave me. And he rightly assigns this affliction to God's control. God is sovereign over his creation and working his will. And this malady is so bad. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's so bad that his friends cannot bear to be with him. Perhaps he's a leper. Perhaps it's our early strain of coronavirus and they're simply uh, using an aggressive form of distancing. But his heart is in anguish as he asks God to be heard. His soul has so much trouble that there is simply no more room for trouble. He has troubles heaped on trouble, so much so that his life was a living death. You can almost sense that he would be better off dead. He, uh, he changes his tune a little bit. We see a little bit of a shift in the second half of verse 9. But I just want to uh, have a couple other thoughts that I wrote down here this morning in, in this first section. We don't know if the writer is actually being punished. We don't have enough information. Uh, Frankly, that's not the point. He's telling God how he feels. He wrestles with what he knows and what he feels here with God. There's no bitter accusation against God. He says, God of my salvation, right? But it feels like there's no salvation for me today. It is possible to have faith, yet feel cut off from God's blessing. And to be cut off from God's blessing is death, right? So, uh, so, so let's not press the writer too far here with, you know, what sin is he being punished for and so on. He's simply crying out to God with all that's left in his heart. He, uh, he is in such a desperate way that he's crying out to his God. And so uh, this, is not, uh, this is not a God who would say, wait a minute, not sure, I'm comfortable with that bit of theology that you're using as you approach the, th- the throne, right? Um, God hears the prayers of his people. We'll talk about that a little more. So he he shifts in verse 9 in the second half uh, to appeal to God. You'll you'll see the the language changes here to a series of questions. Do you see that? He says, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? 
Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or faithfulness in Abaddon, the abyss? So he begins to reason with God. The psalmist is at his end, and God must act soon if there is to be any rescue. Still, the author comes to the throne of grace. He doesn't turn from God. He reasons with him. So, this is an educated man. He knows the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The question is, how can I do that in my miserable existence? I am better off dead. So, what is the purpose in these questions? You are the God of the living. How can my suffering and death glorify you? God's reputation is in fulfilling his covenant promises uh, to his people. He's a salvation God. He's a God who comes through for his people. That's the reputation that God has among the nations. And so he appeals to that. If I'm not rescued, there's no celebration of that fulfillment. There's no vindication of my faith in God. In the first line, he calls God the God of my salvation, invoking that covenant God. Could it be that the God of salvation has no salvation for me? So he, uh, in a mature way, reasons with God to say, save me if only for your praise and glory. Save me if only for your reputation. Now, in contrast, an immature man thinks in terms of a quid pro quo. I want to be rescued. You want to be glorified, so let's help each other out. Scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours, if you will. And so we say things to God like, if you would just heal me, I'll go to church. I'll sing on praise team. I'll even stop sinning if that's what you want. Just help me out. The immature man has a passion for saving his keister, not a passion for God's glory. So see that that contrast there. As we we make the turn where we would expect to soon be looking up and be reminded of God's promises of faithfulness and rescue, we go back to the complaint. So we have complaint, prayer, prayer, and complaint again. The psalmist says, Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? He fears a continuance of his trials. He's scared. Will, Will there be any relief? At your hand I suffer all day and all night. There is no relief from my suffering. 
He has never experienced the uh, goodness of life, if you will. What life has to offer. No prime of life. It is as if he were simply created to suffer and die. We don't know in what way God is afflicting his servant, but that his sufferings were terrible. His suffering consumes him. Suffering is all he knows. And he says, from my youth. So we can expect that, that this is his life. This is all he knows. I believe we're not told the exact ailment so that this could be useful to us today. If it were too specific, we might just say, well, that's not my problem. I can't identify that, right? But instead, we are uh, left with pain that maybe we can identify with. Maybe some of us are experiencing things like this. <clears throat> I, uh, eyesight is important to many people. It's a thing like it's a little fear I have. I, I don't want to lose mine. And um, two clients this week I, uh, I met with, and they told me they had macular degeneration, right? So we're talking about this. One, uh, one woman is, uh, she's 87, and uh, she's, uh, I would say, in the prime of her life. She's feisty. She gets, uh, she gets shots. She's fighting it. She is uh, very much on her game, going through all the reports with me, with her glasses on and, and so on. And the, uh, the other woman I spoke with this week is in her 50s, and she's devastated. She um, doesn't have any, anyone to help her, lives alone, and, uh, you know, divorced and so on and so on, and doesn't know what this means for her job, and, um, and she is uh, despondent. Uh, that's nothing compared to the suffering that we see here in this, in this text. James Montgomery Boyce, a pastor, a commentator, said, it is good that we have a psalm like this, but it is good that we have just one. Amen? The psalm, this psalm does not cover your everyday garden variety trial. But if you find yourself in the darkest darkness of affliction, it's good to know that there's a song for that. This is a psalm for the darkness. No one wants to live at this address, right? Psalm 88. But if you look, if you go back to the text, look at verse 1 and 2. And then verse 9 and verse 13 with me. And 1 and 2, he asks Yahweh, Let my prayer come before you, which is to say, Hear my cry. In verse 9, he says, Every day I call to you. Do you see that? I spread out my hands to you in prayer. 
and 13, he says, I cry to you when? In the morning. First thing. Has our boy lost hope? No. In his worst suffering, our boy gets up in the morning and enters the throne of grace to meet his God. Even though this lament ends with no comfort and no hope, our boy has faith, hope, and prayer. He has a song for the darkness because he has Yahweh. When you are plunged into the dark pit of sorrow, you have resources. You have a covenant God and prayer. So does God hear the prayers of his people? You'll, you'll, uh, you'll note in um, verse 2, he gives God a set of ears. You know, incline your ear to my cry. Right? He gives God this you know, sort of human trait to bring him down to the depths of the pit where he lives his everyday existence. Moses said in Deuteronomy, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Right? As I, um, as I was thinking about this and, and looking at, uh, at some texts about prayer, 1 Pete 5.7 says, cast all your cares upon me, right? Bring all of your, your worries, your fears, your concerns, how big or small. Um, Romans 8.28 says, Paul tells the, uh, the Romans that when you pray in your groans, your you don't know what to say because of the trouble, the Spirit intercedes for you, right? To um, bring those groanings to the throne room. And in um, Proverbs 15, 26, we, we see that our thoughts are known to God. He knows th- the thoughts of all of his creation. So <clears throat> he's not some divine vending machine like Zoltar, right? We put a uh, couple of coins in the plate and we get some uh, spiritual reading. And he's not an old man upstairs trying to juggle millions of prayer requests as if they're emails responding to them. He has complete consciousness. He has complete awareness. If we ask Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, listen to these words. He says, am I a God who is only close at hand, says the Lord? No, I am far away at the same time. Can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and earth? says the Lord. So even when our psalmist feels like God has turned away from him, 
He cries out to God continually. And when you are desperate, there is no need to hide that in the presence of God. You can trust God with your lament. This psalm teaches us that a mature faith in the midst of suffering doesn't look for an easy way out of the trial, right? We might be tempted to pull out our three-step lament here and say, let's get on. Let's, let's turn the corner here, Lord. I've learned. I, uh, I learned the lesson. Let's, let's get to the, uh, to the praise and the celebration. But the mature Christian looks for his God knowing that he is our only hope of salvation. See how the writer cries out to that salvation God. So, my last question for you, was any man as forsaken? Is there anyone as God-forsaken as our guy in the psalm here? Christ, right? If you would just kind of follow me into the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Just picture that set up towards the base of the Mount of Olives. Um, Picture the heavy weight of the Gethsemane stone. After the olives were crushed, a heavy stone was placed above the pulp to sort of squeeze out all of their juice. And so next to that Gethsemane stone, the perfect image bearer of God stands, the perfect son. Jesus about to be crushed. Like our psalm, he pleads with God three times to let this cup pass. He must walk a path of darkness all alone, feeling the full weight of the wrath of God for our sin. He's being pressed down like that Gethsemane stone. He falls to the ground. He labors to breathe. He's sweating blood. His friends leave him. They betray him and they're gone. And worse than that, the father would actually turn his back on his son as he would go to the grave alone. And he would do that so his adopted brothers and sisters would never have to live under the full condemnation of the father, just trying to earn their own salvation, right? their own standing with God that they can never earn, right? 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Christ delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans 5.9 says that since we're, we've been justified by Christ's blood, we will also be saved by him from the wrath of God. So why, while we suffer, we will suffer here, We will never suffer under the wrath of God if we are in Jesus. Christ lived out this psalm. He lived out Psalm 88 to the fullest 
So it can be a song for us to sing in our suffering. If you are in Jesus, there is no wrath left to be poured out on you. It was poured out in full on God's Son. When you suffer, know that in Jesus you have a loving brother who has suffered greater and now intercedes for you in the throne room. In fact, he would cry a lament on the cross himself, wouldn't he? So when you are in the darkness of despair, see God's sovereignty in your suffering and know that it is not wasted. He is in charge of it and it is not in vain. He is working his plan for your good and his glory. When you are suffering, don't badmouth God. Instead, go to Jesus, your suffering co-laborer in God's plan. Paul again to the Romans says, It is Christ Jesus that died, yea, rather that was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Amen. Thank you.